I am Allison Lee, and this is CraftCast, the number one place to hear artists share their passion and talents. Starting the day again, oh yeah, letting the sun shine in, uh-oh, I'm gonna dig within myself, uh-oh. Life may be never what you think, but I think I'll just go with it and create something new. Yes, hello everyone. This is Allison Lee here from the Craftcast Studio. And you might notice, yes, a new format. I decided it was time for a new format, sort of a refocusing, a refreshing. I thought it was like a thorough closet clean out. I did that the other day. And you know, when you're done, you feel like uh, you only have the stuff that you love wearing in there. You look good in everything that you saved, and you're ready to add a few new pieces. So. I decided to do that to the Craftcast show, so there you go. I'd like to say welcome back to all my listeners. You know who you are. You've been following me for years on this sort of crazy audio journey called podcasting. And a big welcome to my first-time listeners. Uh, I'm very happy to meet you. Welcome. This is where you can hear interviews with people in the creative arts of all sorts. And like I say, hopefully have a few aha moments. I know sometimes we have some big, I know I have listening to my guests, some big kaboom moments. Uh, I think that's like, I call that a aha moment times 10. Uh, but today's theme, today's theme here in the Craftcast studio is marketing. Uh, and I was laughing, it's not just Whole Foods marketing. We could do a whole show on that. But uh, today is really how to market uh, your art. Big, big question always uh, that we like to talk about here. Uh, and I'm very fortunate to have Mr. Bruce Baker as today's guests. Uh, guest, that's single. Uh, Bruce has been teaching marketing and all the ins and outs and the do's and don'ts for years. He's really a pro at it. So I'll be sharing that talk I had with him in a minute. Uh, But first, I want to tell you what's new at craftcast.com, the website. Uh, I am very proud to say that Craftcast is the number one website for live craft classes and recordings. Uh, This month uh, is especially exciting for all of you who love PMC, the metal clay. Uh, The new class recordings for sale this month that just went up are, number one, enamel and metal clay bead mashup with the wonderful Barbara Becker-Simon. She teaches you how to add friggin' color, enamel color, into the metal clay, as well as how to make a graduated set of beads. Perfectly graduated. It's a wonderful secret she has, uh, so you can get that recording. Also, the adorable Mr. Patrick Cusick teaches everyone how to make that wonderful botanical book bracelet that won the Saul Bell Award for uh, the Metal Clay Division. Actually, he teaches you two different bracelets, and they are gorgeous, so generous. There's even a free template that comes with your recording, so you can uh, get started in making your own custom bracelet, which is really fabulous. And then my sweet friend, Ms. Holly Gage, shows a fascinating new technique she basically developed called negative space caning. Uh, You have to see it to really appreciate uh, the effects that she can do with metal clay. So uh, come on over to uh, craftcast.com 
All of those recordings are 90 minutes. They can't be found anywhere else, these techniques. Uh, and each recording, when you download it, it, you get a PDF of the class notes that's put together by the instructor, uh, as well as a PDF of the full audio transcription. All of those uh, of you, anyone who has any kind of a hearing problem or needs to read it along, you're all set. So uh, the concept there is for... Um, we here at Craftcast, we want you all to have an exciting, satisfying, successful crafting experience. Right? Nothing wrong with that. Um, so check those all out. There's lots of other recordings as well. I was just telling you the brand new ones that are up there uh, this month. And uh, people have sent in some emails. Can you watch them on your mobile devices? And yes, you can. You can bring that right into your studio. So enjoy that. So now a bit more about today's guest, Mr. Bruce Baker. Uh, you will hear shortly, Bruce is so passionate about how to market your art. Uh, he really knows the business side as well as the artistic side, being an artist himself. He really understands it all. And uh, I, for one, I know how great it is to learn from one that's passionate about what they do. I'm a big believer in that. Why not learn from the experts? It saves me lots of time. Uh, so I know you're going to enjoy that. Uh, and, you know, I also like sharing with you new musical artists I find online. So I hope you enjoy this song by Sherry Miller called Winning Hand. And then come on back and uh, you might want to bring a pen and paper. So I think you might want to take notes uh, when I'll be chatting with Mr. Bruce Baker. in place you keep it close to the vest bet you didn't count on me to break your winning streak i'm your wild card in the deck bet you thought your cards were stacked queen of hearts blackjack your game's so good in this town bet you never found a girl like me who could love you
Well, I'm excited always when I have a guest that comes back to CraftCast. It's so much fun. So today's guest, Mr. Bruce Baker, uh, I'm going to read a little something about him here. I know he has his roots as a metalsmith, which is always fun, but Bruce is known for his expertise in how to market your art, which we all need. He's spent his career teaching workshops throughout United States, Canada on the subjects of booths, the construction, marketing, sales, customer service, and a bunch of other stuff I have heard, which is all great stuff. Welcome back. Welcome back, Mr. Uh, Bruce Baker. Great. Thank you, Allison. It's nice to be back on CraftCast. Yay! So <laughs> let's get right to the heart of things here. You talked to so many people and so many people who want to make their life as an artist. What is the thing that you hear over and over again, the mistake that people are making that you just still can't believe? And let's just get that off the table right away, what we can do about that. Well, the biggest mistake that I think artists make that I encounter is that they think in some ways that they, just because they're artists, they don't have to do all of that left brain stuff, that, you know, it's just uh, enough to be creative, and uh, certainly you do need the creative piece, but like anything else, it has to be balanced with somebody who's uh, looking into where you're sourcing your materials or where you're going to make this stuff go away so you don't end up with piles and piles of stuff on shelves with no money to buy new materials. All of that uh, sort of left-brain analytical stuff, I find that artists uh, either ignore or are in denial about or think that they are immune to. And I know this is true because almost every time I meet a successful person uh, in the craft world, you always find that element of the left brain or some, someone, either a hire or a husband or a wife, paying attention to that part. And I think it's the missing link for many people. Do you think you can make it without that? Can you well, stay I, all in one side of the brain and still make it? Because people out there are going to be like, I could do it without that. Um, I'm sure there are people that say that. And I'm, you know, if you are profoundly talented and you bring something totally fresh and new and not derivative and all of it always exciting and always changing and you're lucky because there are people that are just plain lucky mm -hmm. um maybe you can but right. it's an uphill battle right 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 on the same token do you think someone who's not brilliantly creative but has all their ducks lined up in the business world can make a living I think that they stand a far better chance. I, I meet people all the, all the time whose work is not very good, but their business model is exceptional. And, you know, I would say in my workshops, say it like this, it's easier to sell bad art with a good business model than it is to sell good art with no business model. And that's and, just the plain old truth, and you might as well just sort of suck it up and know that. Right. And, you know, I, I find that, you know, part of, of it is um, – that in some ways I think that, and I'm, I'm talking to myself here as well, I just feel entitled sometimes. You know, I've chosen this life, you know, to be an artist, and I don't have to do that stuff. You know, I don't have to, you know, make that business plan or, um, you know, and, and, and so I understand where people are coming from, but without those um, markers in place, you just sort of roam around aimlessly and you really don't make the connections. And it's always finding uh, an outlet for your work that is the big challenge. Well, do you think that um, that story that was alive and well in the 60s, that artists need to suffer, is still um, living the high life, or has it changed? Well, I think it's changed somewhat, but I, I still think that we all learned that uh, artists need to suffer sort of mentality from academia. It didn't come from anywhere else. Uh, 
I, you know, I, and I, I, I think that uh, academia in many ways, you know, uh, teaches people to be, you know, great artists, but they don't always teach them to be great entrepreneurs, mostly because the people that we're teaching us, they have teaching jobs. So right. they right. get, right. they, they get their paycheck regardless of what they make, whether it goes away or not. They, they don't have the financial, you know, set of needs that, uh, that a studio professional has. And then it goes out from there, you know, that we do suffer mostly because we don't have the business skills to pull it together, to get a rep, to have somebody, you know, on the road or a gallery or, or many times I find also, I mean, it's a little bit off topic, but I find people want to make a certain type of work and then they want to live a certain place like New England. It's a great place for an artist to live. It's a real sort of, you know, sensible, you know, quiet lifestyle. But there's not a lot of customers around right, here, right, so yeah. you, you've got to you got to get your work to the market. Oh, that's the truth. Uh, but now, how, in your opinion, has the internet changed for good and bad for artists? Well, I mean, one change that I see, um, you know, first and foremost, is that it's harder and harder for people to get into shows. Um, one of the reasons be, being two combinations of technology. One is digital photography, and the other is, um, you know, uh, sites like Zapplication or Juried Art Services, which makes it, once you go through the initial, um, the initial learning curve or training phase, makes it so easy to apply to a show just by, you know, uh, submitting a check mark and agreeing to have your credit card be charged is about all So it, they're thrilled. All What's that? They're thrilled to have people then because they're getting payment each time, so it's to their benefit to have people. Well, exactly, but it means more and more people are applying to the shows because right. so many people in the old days would look at their calendar and go, oh, my God, I just missed the deadline to Philadelphia or Washington or, you know, some some show that they really wanted to be in, and they just spaced out the deadline. So that was happening exponentially. Uh, so that, in one hand, you have more people applying to the show. And then on the other hand, uh, because of digital photography, that the uh, images just look so much better. So the competition got cranked up even more. And people that have been doing this for 20 years say, well, I always got in, you know, with these slides 20 years ago, what's going on? Things have changed. So I would say, you know, the, the short answer is, yes, the, the um, Internet has certainly brought change uh, to the business. Right. And if you look at some uh, a site like wholesalecrafts.com, where a person actually can stay in their little New England or um, southwestern studio in the desert, make art and have the ability for it to go away without all the travel. Right, um, right that would have been necessary in the 70s or 80s. All right, but let's let's talk about this, how to get into shows. That's a huge topic. Um, what is, I know that people are doing something wrong and people are doing something right. So what what's the, what's your best advice for that? Well, I, I think it starts from this premise. It's, all of these are platitudes, but they seem to work with the people that hire me and I work with because they have a much better success rate of getting into the shows they want to. But ultimately, um, this is the caveat that I say. If the customer likes it, chances are the jury will not. That's number one. <laughs> All right, say that again. If the customer likes it, the jury will not. Chances are. Chances are. And it makes 
perfect sense because, you know, customers are told what they want to buy or what they should like from magazines and periodicals and the media says, you know, dragonflies are hot and, you know, (laughs) coral and coastal images are big. And if you show a jury, a dragonfly or anything assimilated by popular culture, chances are you're going to be rejected, even though it's your customer's favorites. I would say, you know, if it comes in a Lucky Charms box, hearts, moon, stars, or if it, it comes in a 10, if it's the palette of the 10 Crayola crayon box, you know, right, primary right, right. red, primary blue, you're dead in the water. That's so, great. Okay, so that's a good place to start right there. So trying to find work that has an edge, number one. And when you ask yourself as an artist, when you're sending your slides into the jury, what are you trying to say? Most people are trying to say, pick me or look how talented I am. Right. At, excuse me. And from that point of view, they show a piece of scrimshaw on tree fungus, uh, you know, an oil painting, a uh, uh, PMC, um, a little precious metal clay piece that they did. And, you know, they, they say, look how talented I am. Right. But in, in reality, even if you stick to one medium, Generally, a potter will do a piece of terrace gelata, a piece of raku, you know, a, a, a coil-built uh, sculptural piece, and then a functional piece. And it just looks unfocused and sort of crazy. So um, the rule is to show the jury, look how focused I am. Very and, good. Okay, look how focused I am, number two. I like that. Mm-hmm. And to compose those slides in a way that it really holds your attention, that they're not just random but in the same way that you would use artistic uh, um, sort of talent to arrange a piece, 2D or 3D, and this is 2D because they're looking at it flat, that you arrange those slides in such a way that has a flow and a balance. And palette is the great equalizer. When you find an interesting and harmonious palette, not too much color, um, but pieces that really work together, and this is what I call it, pieces that have the same DNA. Mm-hmm. When you can look at one and look at the other and see a relationship in the same way you can look at a father and you can look at a son and see that there's, there's, there's blood uh, that, that connects these, these two things, and then to have it all be different. Um, by that I mean you can't have five of the same item, like five bowls, Five mugs will not compete with the bowl, the canister set, the teapot, the platter, and, you know, the, the, um, the vase. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that you've got this variety in your work, yet that it shares the same DNA. Um, that can create sort of a pretty alluring slide set. And then the, the next one, the one that almost I, 90% of the people that I deal with have terrible images. Right. But it is terrible because they don't take the process seriously. What they do is they make work that they love, and it's just sort of like all over the place. And then they cherry pick that those pieces on the table. They say, well, I'm going to photograph this one because I like it. I'm going to photograph this one. And I'm going to photograph this one. And they put it all together, and they have a little bit of a hodgepodge. Right. But if, a, if an artist will sit down and design and create a body of work that actually has that same DNA, that the one piece is related to the other and the same elements and the palette is really controlled, and then you get good photography of it. And good photography fails uh, in, on several different fronts. The number one is probably background. Everybody's making jewelry, almost all necklaces, and they flop it or toss it out on a, on a, 
piece of ultra suede or something, and it just looks flopped and tossed. Right. And when you see a professional, you know, that gets into the shows consistently, when you look at that image, it's like, pow, it's total eye candy. Right. It wakes the jury up, and they go, that's what I'm talking about. They right. lean forward, they pay attention, and all the rest of the jewelry that just sort of tossed and flopped around or... Um, the, another one is that it, it isn't properly illuminated, so the slides are sort of dark or dingy. And uh, the, the probably biggest issue is in most cases, people are not filling the frame. Like they will make a bracelet, let's say, and they'll coil the bracelet around to do something with the bracelet. And when it's photographed, the, uh, the, the um, image is 80% background and 20% yeah. art. Good point. And it should be almost reversed. Absolutely. It should be more like 80% art and 20% background. Well, I, I, do, I, I do believe, I don't know if you do, but having been, my training was in photography. That was my first job. And I think that digital allows us to do things, but the truth of the matter is you still need the training to get down and do it all of what you just said with a different lens, with a different light. It is an art and worth it to take a piece and have a professional do it and see the difference you can get. Absolutely. And you know, so I know some people that are taking their own uh, slides, um, and then they're sending them to somebody like Larry Berman, who is really he's masterful at at understanding Zap and Jury Dart Service, and he will work on those slides to you know correct the light and and uh, you know not really changing the work, but just getting the best image possible. And people that even will go take that step have better results of getting in because, once again, the jury doesn't look at them very long. It's right. just eye, eye candy. It has to make a quick visual impression, and it has to make them want to see more. That's great, great advice there. If you already feel at the end I saw enough, that's not a good sign. I'm sorry, I didn't understand you. If you. After looking at the slides, you feel, okay, I've seen enough. I don't need any more. That's not a good sign. Oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, ironically, when you're on a jury, you're just bombarded with image after image after image, and you get very callous. It's like, off with their head, off right, with their right. head. I know. Yeah. And then you see that, you know, all the derivative stuff, the beads and beads and beads and beads. And when you are on a jury, you just get lulled into a bead coma um, <laughs> be because there's just too much of it and it all looks alike. Right. Is there a, wait, first back up, what was the person, the person who you just named, is he doing photo retouching for people? Is that what you mean? I don't know whether they call it retouching. I think they call it uh, uh, optimizing. Okay, but I don't maybe, maybe they, um, but uh, his his name is Larry Berman, B-E-R-M-A, and he's from the Pittsburgh area, and um, I can give you a phone number for him at the end. That yeah, yeah, that's fine. I'll put it up on the CraftCast site, because I know people who have just heard that are like, oh, who is that person? So right. uh, that's a great I, service. I think they'll find him at BermanArt.com, okay, I believe. Okay, good. Um, so what is, is there, uh, what's the... I hate using the word, I really hate the word trend, but I'm going to use it right now. What's popping up, uh, I'm all avoiding the word trend, as you do look at uh, slides that are being submitted for shows, is there a direction that you're seeing right now? Well, uh, we, I have to back up and we do have to talk about that word trend. It's probably one of the most misused words in the entire vocabulary uh, of artists. 
when we hear the word trend, what artists think of, well, you know, crows have gone away and the rooster thing is sort of over and, and you know, um, dragonflies might hang in there for this summer, but they're sort of fading too. Right. And those really aren't trends. Those are, I mean, you'll see that like at gift shows, there'll be sections called trend merchandise and it'll be stationary and stuff. So it's a misuse of the word as uh, I understand it. And when, when the word trend is used, it's socioeconomic political directions our culture takes. And behind every buying, behind everything we buy, there is a trend. And, you know, one of the biggest trends that's affecting this business right now is the aging boomer in two different ways. Mm-hmm. Aging boomers, there's 78 million of them. They did the majority of the buying for all through the 70s, 80s, 90s, uh, the biggest buying machine that was ever probably in, in a culture of the world anywhere, except maybe ancient Rome or something. Um, and all of a sudden, they're realizing they have too much stuff, and they're wanting to downsize. And at the same time, many of them are retiring from a career in medicine or a career as nursing or in finance or uh, in clerical work or something, and now they all want to be, not all of them, but I would say probably 10%, which is 7 million of them, want to be the artists that they put off. Right when they um, started their career. So um, that is a huge trend um, that I see in this business is you have the cutting off of a uh, big population base uh, and then the entering of the field of many, you know, I mean, when I have a workshop, literally 50% or more of the crowd is somebody that is, you know, late 50s to uh, early 70s, and they're really getting into this is how they're going to spend their time um, during their retirement. And that's a huge demographic that's affecting a lot of things. Um, more direct to your question, what trends do I see? I see the biggest trend uh, of all is impressive. Mm. The people that can afford to buy art uh, will admire your art. They will tell you how good you are. But until it's impressive, they will not buy it. Mm. And how do you define and- impressive then? Well, it has to be either really, really big or really, really small. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That too many people are making art for the middle size, mm-hmm. the, the middle, the middle art. You know, by that I mean the twelve by eighteen, mm-hmm. two two dimensional piece, or you know, a lamp that stands, you know, eighteen, fourteen, eighteen inches tall. The people that can afford this stuff. Um, and live in houses where the living rooms are 28 by 36. So they need a lamp that stands 48 inches tall or, right. you know, 70 inches tall to actually be impressive and work with their home, their decor, and their scale. Right. I, 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 too many people are making art for a, a double wide or the, the size of a home of a double wide, and the people that live in those sort of smaller middle-class homes now have a million places where they can buy great stuff like Target or right. the Christmas tree shop. or And, it, you know, it's like I, I go to a place like the Christmas tree shop. I don't know whether you have those oh, where yes. you are. Oh, yes. um, but I always walk in and I feel like, oh, God, what a bunch of crap. And I get about three aisles in. I'm going, honey, get a card. <laughs> because, I <know. laughs> sorry, I just, I just jerked my headset out of my ear. I oh, got God. so excited. I'm excited about the but, Christmas tree store, yes. But you absolutely find things there. I mean, obviously made offshore, but many of them are fantastic. 
and they're cheap, and these are our competitors. So right. we have to distinguish ourselves by making art that is more impressive, either bigger or smaller, so it has that clout. Um, you know, another thing that will make something impressive is if you're working in 2D or painting on a surface to employ um, metallics, uh, metallic colors, metallic glazes, things that come across as gold and silver because it really gives richness. And who can, even the rich can't afford gold anymore. Right. Um, and uh, so here we have, you know, the replacement of uh, something that human beings are just attracted to, like shiny, precious metal. It's being replaced by using gold foils in two-dimensional art or gold glazes or collaging in some way what you do with metallics to give it that sort of richness and that, that uh, impressiveness that is necessary. So impressive, it comes up about from scale, either large or small, and then what, what you bring to that piece so that it goes, ta-da, instead of ta-da. Yeah, 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 yeah. That makes sense. I get it. No, all right, so now let's say you have your ta-da set up. Um, I know you have great, we're going to give your website, which I know is bbakerinc.com, where people can get all your great um, recordings on information to help like this, especially when you're setting up shows and make you think out of the box a bit differently. It's hard to do all your own stuff. Oh, absolutely. You need absolutely. an opinion from someone else. Well, it, I, I always think that, you know, many of us, that's another thing we were taught in art, art school is that we have to be like, you know, Leonardo da Vinci, who does everything and does it masterfully yes. and well. Um, but all throughout history, I mean, if you look at Rubens, he just painted the centers, and he had, you know, little people to paint the sides. And, you know, Paul Revere had, you know, I think 16 apprentices that helped him make the, the flatware and the tea services that he turned out from his shop. It, it's just sort of been since the 60s that artists feel like they have to be a lone wolf uh, doing this all, you know, in isolation in a cave somewhere. And uh, it's just not, not true. I guess it's true as long as you have all those people outside the cave feeding you and doing all the rest of the stuff. <laughs> yeah. Then it'll work. <laughs> right. That's exactly. just not how it seems to go down, though. It's just not it. Um, now, what do you think? I just got back from Lynnhurst Craft Show here on the East Coast this past weekend. Uh, what do you think? I felt it was very different going there this year. Uh, do you get a different feeling of who is showing now in these shows? Well, uh, I, I go to shows all the time, and I, uh, whenever I feel it's different, um, I get very excited. Yeah. Somehow, uh, the Acre show in Orlando felt a little bit uh, different to me. Um, maybe it was because there were many people there that I just hadn't seen before, and that's pretty exciting. Right. Um, but when you go to many of the shows, it's the same people doing the same work, um, and sometimes they're not only doing the same work, but they've also gotten disgruntled and bitter um, about what's happened in our culture rather than realizing that if they did something different or they changed, um, you know, what they're working on and how they're working, that uh, they might have a different outcome. Disgruntled and bitter never works well behind your booth. Well, that's for sure. Uh, you know, any form of unmet expectation reads from the aisle. Um, and uh, I just find when I go to shows, often the people look so miserable. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and uh, when you do encounter somebody 
that is genuinely upbeat and excited, it's really refreshing. And then sometimes that switches and crosses over to ingratiating and insincere. Um, so there's a balance there as well. Um, you certainly want to put on a happy face in your booth, um, but uh, you know sometimes I walk into people's booths and you know how you doing? You enjoying the show? And you know I always say if you talk to people uh, like you're in a, in an assisted living facility, they don't want to buy anything from you. So it it's it's trying to find that balance of of you know being genuinely sincere, excited to be there, and when you do project that energy, it's amazing how much better the show will be because that's what the customers are actually looking for. Are customers wanting to be engaged by the artist? Do they, or do they want to be left alone? What is the, what is the reality check on that? Well, that's, that's a, it's a great question. I mean, first of all, first mistake people make is there'll be two people in a booth, and they're being gargoyles to their business because they've totally outnumbered the customers. So right, right. people walk in and look, look around. You know, they won't even step across that imaginary line in the front. Right. They sort of look around, and if you've got something that really intrigues them, they'll pull them in, but with two people there. So it should just be one person per booth until the, that, that person gets engaged, and the other person that, that might be helping needs to swoop in and, and lend a hand. Um, when you ask people how they like to be treated when they go shopping, the first thing they'll say is when they go shopping, they want to be left alone. Yeah. But I truly believe that that's consumer speak, um, and I, I wouldn't believe that for a minute. And my proof is that whenever you ask somebody, how, uh, you know, what's your biggest complaint or the number one customer complaint is, nobody paid a bit of attention to them, then, you know, nobody even looked up, nobody said hello. So it's this funny thing. Artists get sort of lulled into the fact that they think customers want to be left alone, so they just sort of sit in their booth shyly waiting for somebody to ask them a question, right. which is a huge missed opportunity. Right. They just don't really know how to engage people in a way that is sincere. So right. that's what customers want to, want to be free from or what left alone from is asking them stupid, insincere, and ineffective questions. Right. Because if you say to somebody, can I help you, what are they going to say? No, oh, thank no, you, I'm just, just looking. looking. Right, right, right. right. But if you say, if I can answer any questions for you, just let me know. Right, well, right, there's a difference. And then you have to back away, be busy doing something else, right. relieving the pressure, and then pretty soon the customer will say, can this go outside, or is this, is, will this shrink? Will this tarnish? You know, right. um, do you have this in blue? And boom, now you're, now you're ready for business. Right. Yeah. And then there's nothing like repeat customers. If you can get someone to be one of your fans and then they come looking for you at a show, that's the best. The best. And you should arm those. When they give you a compliment, say, I so appreciate right. your kind words. Here, let me give you some business cards or a brochure. And the next right. time somebody comments on my scarf, please give them one of these. And customers are delighted to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, I find that people, especially women, they do share. But if they can find something different that they can put on and then all the other women can say, where did you get that? It's, a, it's an award. It's a win because you didn't just get it at Target or at Macy's on sale or something. You know, I think women tend to really look for that special thing and then wear it as a badge of <laughs> success. You know, that, that's so interesting because you're absolutely right. I noticed that um, um, men, two men like me and all my buddies, if we go out and get something, 
I will get the same shirt as my friend got, you know. Um, I'll buy the same tackle box, the same scuba uh, fins, whatever. Men are that way. And women want their things to be sort of unique to them. It is a little Mars-Venus thing that we have. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, I, and I really do think that there is a win about this. But, you know, it's like, you know, people are always saying, well, everybody bargains so much. Everybody's bargaining all the time right. at these shows. Right. And w- w- one of the things that I'm really realizing is they bargain, first of all, because it works. And they're going to keep bargaining because it works. Right, right. But, but the biggest thing is that I think many people bargain because they create a better story than the seller the artist seller is telling them mm, because good when you point. Good when point. you point to something and say, "Oh, what a beautiful necklace!" Well, I got this at a craft show, yeah. and it was one hundred and ninety-five dollars, but I got it for one hundred and forty-nine. That's a better story than the the artist told them. And if the artist would have said, "This is a Uruguayan amethyst, and look at the intensity of that color. The color of that amethyst is, you know." light years ahead of what you would find in Amethyst from South Africa. And, you know, it's like the cut's pretty special, too, and you talked about it in that way. The person would buy it for, you know, $179, and when somebody said, what a beautiful necklace, they'd say, you know, this is Uruguayan Amethyst. You're brilliant. You're brilliant. That's correct. You're right. Well, I, I just have been finding that more and more because whenever somebody tries to bargain with me in the store when I'm selling, I say, well, allow me to tell you a bit more about this. And I tell them this story, and it's amazing. About 50% of the time, the whole bargaining issue just went away. Yeah, 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 yeah. But that's a really excellent point, because I was just realizing you were saying that when I went to whatever, one of the department stores here that's been doing, because coupons and percentages off are very big right now, and I buy something, the first thing I say to a girlfriend is, and I got it on sale with two coupons and 50% off. That is the story. That's exactly. a really good point. Really good point. Don't you find, too, if I think this is especially true with women, if you can get them, because I'm both sides of the, I've been on both sides of the fence here, if you can get it on them and they feel the difference in what they uh, can look like, feel like, and experience it, that's a huge step as well. Well, not only getting it on them, that's, that's a, you know, double plus good, um, but just getting it in their hand. Okay. Um, mm-hmm, the, mm-hmm. The touch response, uh, statistically, you're four times more likely to sell somebody something they've touched than something that they have not. Wow. And four times. So, uh, That's great. That's yeah. interesting. Okay. So often we display our work in such a way that it really isn't touchable. It's too high. It's too low. It's too crowded. The customer's afraid to touch it for fear they'll break something. Right. Um, or, you know, so many people have so much stuff on the floor that it trickles out and a human arm isn't long enough to reach stuff on the shelves. That's a good um, point, in, good point. In some cases. So getting people to touch it, try it on, taste it, feel it, smell it, you know, wear it, all of those, any of the senses, any way that you can bring a sensory awareness beyond the visual, because the visual is the first step. It's right. what will make somebody stop and be drawn into a booth. Right. Um, and then any, the more of the other senses you can involve, the more likely you are to make a sale. But the touch response is really right up there with the visual response. Well, let me ask you just one other question before we close. Do you think, I I have noticed a bit, some people who have a very um, higher end, which I mean by higher priced items, will also have one thing that's something very approachable and easy to purchase. Do you think that's a good mix to do, or should you only go stay one direction? All your prices are either in one point or the other. Well, 
I think that, you know, if it's really, really uh, high end, it's great if you've got something else. If you can, without costing you sales, uh, and I, the, without costing you sales is the, is the big the key, issue, right. you know, do giclés or something that's, you know, smaller, right. um, more affordable. I think that that has a lot of potential. Some people say that it keeps them from selling their big work. Um, I think that there's a possibility of that. Right. Um, but I would really, I would really like to see everybody have a, you know, an upper end, a, a, a little bit of middle, and then you know, a lower end if they're going to be doing shows because it takes those bodies in your booth. You got to have people in your booth. What nothing brings, yeah. nothing brings people into your booth more than other people. Isn't it true? As soon as I see a booth that's crowded, I'm like, well, what's going on over there? <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's, it's the hunter-gatherer part of our uh, species that just, you know, sees somebody picking blueberries and say, well, I want some, too. Exactly. So, um, so you've got to, in some cases, have, you know, those lower-end things to, just to keep the register running, to keep you entertained, keep people coming in and out of your booth. And if your work is related, it can work quite well. Right, um, right, right. And by related, I mean two things that do not work is like, Sophisticated, high-end, one-of-a-kind, and then in the same booth, sort of cutesy um, or uh, whimsical or cute, uh, existing with sophisticated, they sort of cancel each other out. Right, right, right. No, it has to go back to what you were saying, even in your slides. It has to still come from the same voice. Right, exactly. And then it can work. Oh, well, my head is filled with things. I knew, Mr. Bruce Baker, you would do that. It's all such good stuff. The other side of sitting around in our studios and creating the art, the other side of the brain, we have to deal with that, too. I'm telling you, time never flies as fast as when I'm talking to you. <laughs> I'll take that as a good thing. <laughs> oh, absolutely. It was a very good thing. Oh, good. Well, it's always a pleasure. So, again, everyone, you can go over to bbakerinc.com to see Mr. Bruce Baker and all of his wonderful things. I highly recommend if you're thinking about doing any kind of shows, building booths, all that kind of information, get a hold of his CDs. You will save yourself so much heartache. Just learn it up front from the man who knows. Thank you, darling. A pleasure as always talking to you. Thank you, Allison. Bye-bye. So a big thank you to Bruce and to my musical guest, Sherry Miller. You can come on over to www.craftcast.com and you can get the links for uh, Bruce's, all of his sites, as well as Sherry and anything else we talked about. So there you go. Come on back next week when my guest is creative career coach, Michelle Ward. Uh, she's also known as the When I Grow Up Coach. You don't want to miss the information she has to share with us. Uh, and since today's theme was marketing, I wanted to share a little marketing quote I found for all of you today that comes from a site called TUT.com, a site that, it says, explores the power of thought and creative visualization. Uh, and that quote is this, thoughts become things, so choose the good ones. I say amen to that. So there you go. Until next week, you can send me an email at www.craftcast.com. But until we meet again, I'd like to say get your butt in the chair and keep crafting. Just get your-